So, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to welcome film director, producer, fellow podcaster, a secret spy, I believe, <laughs> Chris Carr. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs> and in this episode, we will talk about your latest spy film yeah. called The Dry Cleaner. First of all, basically, can mm. you give my listeners and viewers a little bit of context of um, what The Dry Cleaner is about shortly? Um, the Dry Cleaner is a kind of contemporary spy drama. Um, it focuses on a British intelligence officer called George, who's kind of un under pressure from his management to kind of uh, get insight into uh, an ex sort of extremist group and a revolutionary group known as the FKA. And he recruits a student named Lydia. And um, he's basically kind of in a situation where he's not sure whether she's going to help him or not. So the whole film is kind of revolves around that question. In terms of writing, this um, yeah. I think we can go back and start with your passion for mm. spies. Um, so like most, uh, you know, English boys, you grow up with James Bond and the man, I grew up with James Bond, the man from Uncle. And and for years, that was kind of like my reference. It was all exciting. It was all, all pretty cool. And then in my later teenage years, um, there was this TV show on Channel 4 um, called Wanted. And it used to have this guy on it called Oleg Gordievsky. And Oleg Gordievsky is like this sort of KGB defector who, who came to the West. A few years later, I was working part-time in a supermarket and one of my customers was Oleg Gordievsky. And it was like, wow, this sort of super spy who may have prevented World War Three was one of my customers. So I kind of went up to him and asked him, excuse me, sir, are you Oleg Gordievsky? And he was like, yes, yes, I am. Um, and then I asked, you know, we had a little bit of small talk and um, I asked him a bit about his experiences and then he recommended I get his book, which is a book called Next Stop Execution. Um, and you know, great salesman there. And um, that book totally changed my perspective of spying. So I was a teenager. I was studying at Sixth Form College. I was studying psychology, drama, and media studies. And I, you know, had the film bug all my life and fascinated by spies and stuff. And what I realized through this book was um, espionage is very much the stuff of drama. It's not blowing stuff up. It's not getting involved in shootouts. It's actually literally two people from opposing sides in a room who have to kind of trust each other because there's a lot of danger because if one of them gets caught, they can get in a lot of trouble. And in the case of Oleg, he would have been executed had he been caught. And it just to me was the stuff of drama. I thought, this is amazing. Did the research happen before or after you've decided you're going to make this film like obviously yeah um the research inspired you mm, mm. or when you decided you make a film yeah you did like tons of research after as well mm, mm, mm. yeah a bit of both with regards to the dry cleaner so the original idea came to me 10 years ago actually it was i was on holiday um in 2011 um you know as i was saying i hit 30 and i was like my goodness i need to be directing something and so the idea was kind of born on that holiday and then um then i sort of looked at a few spy books and and i thought about um originally so the the dry cleaner went through kind of three iterations before it became what it we know um, the first one was very much a rather ridiculous story called Moscow Rules, where it was about, um, and, you know, and some of it can reflect my life, but it was about an office temp who was obsessed with spies, whose wife gets kidnapped. And, um, and through his knowledge from spy books, he kind of tries to, to figure out where his wife is and, and sort of sort out the kidnappers. Um, and that was a completed script. Um, 
And yeah, it wasn't great. <laughs> it was fun to write, but it really wasn't great. Then a, another iteration happened, which is where George and Lydia kind of began. And that was the dry cleaner with a K. Um, and that one was a bit more suspense. It was very Hitchcocky and very suspense, but it was a bit... The problem was with that script, the the film, the filmishness and the, the suspense kind of got in the way of depth. It was a very shallow story, but... I, I would say quite you know exciting and suspenseful. We even had this scene in the script, which I always quite liked, but it never happened. Um, where the so in this story, Lydia um, discovers George, her spy handler, is dead, and then she kind of gets a, potentially accused or sus she's suspected of maybe killing him. Um, and then as she leaves the safe house, she um, uh, bumps into someone in the street who later on the police you know interview and they try and do a, a, a sketch of what she looked like. And, and I had this idea of like using the sketching process as a kind of way whilst we're going through the story that you slowly build her face, and at the end of that scenes like there she is <laughs> but um <laughs> so that was the other version and then finally um the dry cleaner as we know it today was born um and i wanted to make it more so at the time you know obviously uh you had the arab spring in the middle east and lots of other things i kind of wanted to make it more meaningful i didn't want to gloss over a lot of things um and by then i'd read quite a few spy books and also some really interesting books on extremism um and there's one book in particular called the double bind by meredith tax who actually ends up being um the first guest on my my podcast which we'll talk about a bit later and um she talked about this sort of problematic relationship between the anglo-american left and the islamic right so islamic extremism effectively comes from uh, the right wing of Islamic culture, a bit like how extremism in the West usually comes from neo-Nazis. It's very similar. And so when I realized that, um, is I to understand the language of extremism and how they kind of bring people in, I started to realize there's something quite interesting here. Um, and also on top of that, during that time, um, there was a lot of incidents with extremists, uh, you know, people connected to Al Qaeda or ISIS who were from university and they were flying out to Syria, Iraq and things like that. And, and there was a lot of things going on in the UK on British campuses where, um, you know, extremist groups were suddenly no platform moderate Muslims and things like that. And and so there's just a whole cocktail of things going on. Speaking of locations, mm, can mm. you tell my listeners, so basically yeah. and viewers, yeah. um, they are from around the world. Yeah. And secondly, a lot of them are aspiring filmmakers. Yeah. So yeah. can you tell them yeah. firsthand how friendly is London in terms of filming? And yeah. Is it a painful process to get those filming permits and get this yeah. done or is yeah. it quite okay and easy? It could be both. <laughs> <laughs> so um depends on the project depends how you present yourself so with the dry cleaner um so we film in we film at a university campus we film in quite a few independently owned shops we also film in a private flat that doubles for the safe house we also film on the streets of london you know east london west london um and then we film in another private residence so so Private residences are pretty easy. You, you know, it, it, it with with the safe house location. I put a call out on Facebook. I put up some images saying, "I'm looking for something like this. Does anybody know anybody or anybody?" 
and a few people came back and then um, a very lovely lady uh, let us use her flat. We had to pay her, but we paid a quite a moderate amount of money, what it could have been. And it was a lovely looking flat. We we had to <laughs> empty out and then put in back in what we wanted. Um, <laughs> and um, no, she was incredibly supportive, bless her, and, and you know, um, was very helpful. Um, then we had another privately owned flat, um, and that again was pretty straightforward. So the shops were more complicated, and, I, and so what I did do with the dry cleaner, I was writing locations that I, I in fact, I was talking to locations as I was writing the script. I, I chose um, Brick Lane, East London, um, and, and sort of Shoreditch, that kind of area, because there's a lot of independently owned shops. And from experience, independently owned shops are far easier than filming in shops that are owned by big brands. Because if you deal with a big brand, you've got to deal with their corporate headquarters. And then it starts getting really murky because then they start asking questions about what the film's about. So as soon as you mention the word terrorism, people are like, oh, no, 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 we don't want that. <laughs> and I learned very quickly, actually, we always use the word spy film. And we, um, in one of our locations, and I've got a great, um, I've got this great story from our last day of filming. It was um, so... Um, we, we literally, we, we had to do, so the film ended up being broken up in a, a couple of ways. So, um, the dialogue scenes, I did a chunk over four days, um, because I knew I need most of my crew for that, but for the street scenes, I wanted a skeleton crew. So I kind of shot it a bit more like a music video because we just had to literally, we, we picked locations that were walkable. So all the shops you could walk, you know, walk within 15 minutes and get to the other shop. Um, and, and that was also by by design. And um, so anyway, on the last day of filming, um, we we had basically it was kind of like a pickups day. We had to pick up a few shots um, in uh, around St James's, where the sort of finale happens, where Lydia realizes who's following her, goes up these stairs, things like that. We had to pick up a few shots there that we had missed because we ran out of light previously when we shot that scene. And for some reason, we 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 that location was pretty straightforward. That was a little little area around the back of Westminster, and it, and, it, and we got permissions quite easy. Um, and um, so we didn't really put much thought into going back there. I don't know why. We just thought, ah, oh, be fine. And for some reason, it completely missed all of us that it was VE Day, Victory Europe Day. And there was a massive parade going on around Westminster and, and the police used our location, I say our location, we didn't own it, but used that area for a kind of like staging ground for all their stuff. So there were snipers on the roof. There were like police vans full of like SAS guys. There was all sorts of, and even roadblocks. I was like, I was like oh my God. So you as a director, you like got this shot list and, and that's all you kind of care about is getting your shot list. And the second you see that, you're like, the first thought I had was, we're not going to be able to finish this film. I'm like, oh my God. Um, and I had it I take about 10 minutes because I was really like freaked out. I was like, oh my God. So I walked off for 10 minutes and kind of calmed down. Um, and then, and then we slowly figured out what we could get away with and stuff. And what, anyway, so whilst all this was going on, you know, there's this huge parades, there's all, there's tourists, there's all sorts of stuff going on. And slowly the police, the, I think the police at first thought we were like news people going to film the parade. They didn't seem to be bothered by us, but because we we're <laughs> hanging around so long and then like getting out more and more elaborate bits of equipment, like they started to wonder who the hell are these people? And so um, the guy who was in charge of the whole kind of police operation that day storms over to my AD. Like, who's in charge here and then literally on cue everybody points their finger at me and it's like it's a bit like that scene invasion with the body snatchers like there he is you know <laughs> and, and suddenly i like 
what's going on? And this policeman storms right over to me. He's like, what's going on here? And I'm like, uh, well, we're trying to film a spy film here. Uh, <laughs> and, and I explained that we had all these permissions and stuff. And, and, and in the end, so I said, what is he doing? A spy film. He's like, I like spy films. Yeah, just get on with it. You know, don't get in the way. Get on with it. You know, fine. And I'm like, wow. You know, so we, we got on with what we got to do. And then in the end, um, there's this one shot where in the film, you see Lydia's walking down this street and then we kind of pull focus to the person following her. Yeah. So that was filmed on VE Day. Now, that was the bit where the parade was. Luckily, the parade long gone by then. So by the time we got around to doing that shot, we... Um, it was dead around there. Um, and But the problem was we kept having people staring at us. So I asked one of the police, is there anything they could do about it? <laughs> and they moved some of the people out of the way so we could get that shot, which was very kind of them. Because I think they were bored by this point. But Because uh, <laughs> obviously, the one thing I've learned, when you watch film units work, because they work so slowly, it does get very boring. It's initially quite exciting. And then like, and then it's just people standing around and then moments, things happen. And then that's it, you know? <laughs> I wanted to talk about, I like the sequence. So also the start mm. of the film, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of editing going on. Um, so I yeah. suppose a lot of things happened in the actual mm. editing room. Mm -hmm. And my question for, especially for these spy mm. films, sequences where somebody's followed or yeah. somebody's talking someone, um, how much it is in your head before you film like what is the vision oh, like you literally yeah. see it like to every detail yeah. and how much it happens in the editing room like is yeah. it completely different or it's literally your vision yeah it got better in the editing room so in fact i that opening sequence was one of the hardest things to get my head around when i was working on the development of the film so in pre-production i kind of went out because i realized I wanted to use Still's camera for Lydia's point of view. Um, and that both was an artistic choice and a practical choice because I knew that we were going to only have like half an hour per shop um, and we would no way in hell get all the coverage we needed in half an hour. But if I sent a lowly Still's photographer of a couple of people just to hang around the shop afterwards, I could probably get more material. So that's kind of where that, that started from. And also it was inspired by a great French film called Le Jeté, um, which is a beautiful film and uses Still's photography. And yeah, so I, so with the opening sequence so one of it had a bit of a goal as well i wanted to introduce people to the style of the film um early on so they weren't abruptly brought out of the film when because memory plays a role in this film and memory is one of his themes i'm a bit obsessed with but um and it, and, it, and i wanted to make sure people could t t tell what, what's the past and what's the present without having to like put on screen previously or, or whatever you know what i mean flashback you know or, or have a flash to white and then now we're in the past you know um i was trying to find subtler ways to do that um so i i, I realized the opening few minute the opening minute of the film is kind of like the audience's introduction to the world and the, the style of the film um, and i actually learned that from a director's commentary from tony scott because he was talking about um is it the film Man on Fire? I think it was that, that has a lot of like um, hand crank camera stuff where they basically where it's a film camera and you, you you're um, winding the film through manually and you can change the speed and it can create these weird, lovely effects, which is then, you know, it's what creates that kind of man on fire look, which was representative of the point of view of Denzel Washington. Um, but you've got to kind of introduce your audience to it early so you don't. So when you do use it, it doesn't pull jar people out because I've seen other films so they don't do that and suddenly it just really brought out of the movie and it kind of becomes jarring and confusing sometimes too. So that whole opening sequence, I, I literally, um, 
in my spare time before filming the film, I kind of went out with a stills camera, photographed lots of strangers, bless them. Never used those shots in the film. I just photographed everything. I filmed bits. I, I, I you know, um, I had some uh, a temp track from our composer, um, Andy, Andy Bird, or Andrew R. Bird, as he's officially known. Um, you know, and his temp music was really helpful in helping me kind of figure out the pacing. And then, and then you know, we brought all those components together in the editing room. And, and we were, you know, to, the editing took quite a while because we were doing, because um, Christina, the editor, um, you, know, she, you know, she and I were working on this between freelance projects. So it went on for quite some time, the editing. And it was just our side project. And, and you know, and, and, and um, so, yeah, I think we did the, di- if I remember the correct, if I remember the way editing worked, we did all the dialogue scenes first because they're quite, I wouldn't say they're easy to edit, but they kind of have a logic that works and smoother. And then when you're trying to figure out like the language of dry cleaning and all that sort of stuff that took forever um and when we were you know constantly all sorts of things we tried out and um you know and even if i was to do it again you know next time so if i did it on a big budget i probably would try and play around with um you know like film cameras and and you know and use some different kind of quality cameras because i love that hand crank aesthetic which i mentioned from man of fire there's something in that that could look quite good with dry cleaning because one of the things one of the notes i got from a real um, surveillance officer i met before making the film was that you kind of when you're actually doing dry cleaning you kind of you do take snapshots in your head but you don't necessarily take snapshots just of the people you kind of take snapshots of what they're wearing and weird little details and movements and stuff like that and and i think like playing around with um, a hand crank camera you could really capture that even more that sensation it's just so fascinating yeah. and, um I, so you've got your podcast on yes yes secrets and spies wait, <laughs> yes so you interview spies basically mm. this film you made the tri cleaner inspired you to start a podcast it did yeah awesome yeah. Yeah. It, so you would it, it, never do it if you didn't make a film. I or? don't think so. No, I mean, it's weird. I mean, as you can tell, I talk a lot. Um, and, and like, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was always told off for talking too much, stuff like that. So I'm sure at some point I may have found a subject and done a podcast of some description. But um, but it wasn't, it, it was because of the film that, you know, this, the, it was originally called The Dry Cleaner Cast. So it was a companion to the film. But I realized over time, no one knows what the hell dry cleaning is. And they thought it was about laundry and what have you. So I changed the name to Secrets and Spies. It's a bit more generic but seriously when i changed that name i tripled my listenership in a week it was bonkers um and, and so it's a big lesson actually about titling there because even the dry cleaner for a short film title probably is a bit obscure um and the thing is uh, one thing i have learned is american spies are easier to get hold of than british ones because of the law um so british spies uh, it's very rare that you I've, I have interviewed a few uh, what should I say intelligence officers so uh, a spy in, if you want to be really nerdy about it an intelligence officer is what we think of as a spy and a spy is actually the asset so the British people uh, are very hard to interview because of the law um, they, the Official Secrets Act doesn't really allow much room for for writing memoirs about your career in espionage whilst um, for the CIA it seems to be a lot easier so, so I've interviewed an awful lot of American spies over the years <laughs> How do you get in touch with spies? I mean, just like yeah. you, you mentioned Twitter, so you just yeah. go like, okay, 
spy yeah enter yeah. like you know google spy <laughs> and then cool. yeah. hello yeah. <laughs> are you a spy i want you yeah. to well, there's, 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 well, there's quite a clique on twitter of former cia people <laughs> um and, and like and so i suppose to ask your question so first of all um twitter's really good um twitter's not perfect so for every probably five guests that get on i probably have five who don't ever get back to me um and uh, and that ratio has got better over the years but like yeah twitter's quite a funny one um and also sometimes a lot of those people don't have open direct messaging so mm-hmm. unless they follow you back it's really hard to privately communicate with them so sometimes you have to just take a leap of faith and just <laughs> tweet at them say please go on my podcast uh, and and you're lucky they might um so yeah twitter's really great for that and i love twitter you know um twitter's really good for following your interests and finding people it's just not good to argue with people on it it's just like it's not a good idea any idea for the future film one thing i've learned is it's not a good idea to spend all your time on one project because um you know if you put all your eggs in one basket it doesn't always work out and, and i've met people over the years who you know you meet them and 10 years later still talk about the same film which is myself included i'm still talking about the dry cleaner not that it's 10 years old but but it has been a long ongoing process and i think many of my friends are now like oh my god not that film again but um <laughs> you know so it, it's one of those things but um so i've got um so I, over the summer i wrote a tv pilot for um so one of my guests on the podcast wrote a novel and wants to turn it into a tv show and um you know a lot of back and forth and then over the summer i spent six weeks writing this tv pilot and it's now is now being read by a uk broadcaster i have no idea what will happen after that and said i can't say much more about it than that but it, uh, the fact that we got it read by a broadcaster and it's and something i wrote i'm like wow you know so i feel quite pleased about that then i've got about it's about four feature films that um i've got to like a third draft stage now uh, and they're in a pretty good shape so i'm talking to producers and stuff and trying to use the sort of the success of the dry cleaner to to hopefully get some conversations going. So I've got a few producers who are looking at that in the moment. I'm waiting to hear back from them. Um, luckily, I've got a bit of a production background myself. So if all else fails, I will have to do everything, um, which I'm trying not to because producing and directing is really painful. I have to thank you for your time because My pleasure. <laughs> very valuable and insightful and interesting. And for everybody who wants to watch mm. The Dry Cleaner, it's available on Prime Video and Apple yep. TV, right? That's it, yep. Yeah. And if you want to get a taste, you can go on YouTube and watch the trailer and then jump on the full movie. Yeah. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on. That's been it's been great. <laughs>